Hello, and welcome to Analyzing Finance with Nick. This is the final iceberg of economics. And in levels one through seven, we covered the Reddit meme of iceberg of economics and used his terms or her terms to kind of slowly move down um, to the crazy talk. Uh, level eight was the schools of heterodox economics that were not included in the iceberg that I thought were noteworthy enough to have their own tier. And now we're in the bottom tier, which is my theories on economics. And more specifically, my theories of economics that differ from the rest of those topics on the iceberg. Some of them are connected to some of the ideas here. Others are just um, kind of completely out of left field. But as somebody who considers himself to be um, a self-taught macroeconomist, I did get my undergraduate degree in economics, but I didn't really do anything in graduate or PhD level in the field. But I still have a lot of ideas about this just through years of reading and studying it and also being a professional market participant in the financial sector. And without further ado, let's get going. The first one I call is prosperity theory of democratic politics. And democratic, I mean, just in the sense of democracy more than the United States Democratic Party. But it's the idea is like a city passes originally policies that promote economic development and growth in the beginning when it's relatively small. And as the city gets more successful, uh, it has it brings a bunch of economic prosperity. But with that economic prosperity, it also brings people who are more likely to vote for redistributionist policies, whether it's lower income people moving to those cities for better opportunities or lower income people moving to those cities because since they have more wealth, they have more charity and other things to take care of the poor. Or it's younger, more idealistic people who come there and both see like the unfairness in the world and want to solve that through redistribution or it attracts academics or other left-leaning mind people come to these cities after their initial gains of prosperity. And because of those change of demographics, as the city grows, the city changes its voting patterns to be more um, anti-free market, more redistributionist, and more lenient on crime. And as a result of that, they unintentionally kill the golden goose that drove the success of that city. And because of that, then you see people moving out. And it's often the first people to move out, um, ironically, happen to be the same people who moved, or maybe not the same exact people, because this happens over decades and periods, but the same demographic that would have moved to the city when it was growing. It's younger people looking for economic opportunities, uh, students, academics, uh, the people who cannot financially support themselves in the city because the quality of life has gone down. And so they leave and to this next city that's booming. And as a result, the politics again then starts to shift more back to a more conservative, tough on crime, 
more pro-economic development policy because the people who stay there want to see their city turn around and those who are there just really for um, more fleeting benefits have left. And we could see this just for examples of like the political trends of pretty much every major city in the United States of America um, as cities as go, cities that used to be very um, politically conservative, especially for sizes of its population density, such as San Diego, Los Angeles, uh, Orange County, Atlanta, Georgia, Dallas, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, as they've grown bigger, their politics has shifted to the left as the prosperity has attracted people who would more be in favor of redistribution as policies without realizing it's those same political philosophies that lower the qual prevent the city from being competitive and take away a lot of its golden goose. Like an example with Los Angeles, a lot of businesses in uh, outside the entertainment industry have largely left the city and moved their corporate headquarters to places in such as Dallas, Texas. And then on the other side, when a city starts to struggle, they do the reverse. They pass a lot of economic development incentives to encourage businesses to move there. And they try to clean up on crime. Like example would be like when New York had its trough in the 80s and 90s. New Yorkers elected more tough on crime leadership, and they also elected leadership that promoted more growth of local businesses and having big companies move to New York City. That just became um, example. Also, would be say like upstate New York and Detroit um, and Michigan as a whole, whose politics is to be the most progressive in America, it was what we consider a place like California and its politics 60 years ago. And now is more purplish because they have to make changes because what they were doing was killing their golden goose. But with Detroit, it wasn't just due to politics. There was just bigger structural issues there. But Michigan, as a result, is an example of how somebody on the other side of the curve, where some a state whose politics have shifted because of the front end of the prosperity theory of democratic politics is currently what's going on in Georgia. Georgia used to be a very conservative state. The conservative politicians passed a lot of pro-business legislation and tax incentives and other things to attract businesses to move to Atlanta. Atlanta becomes a much more prosperous city. It brings in a new, younger, more progressive crowd. And as a result, the city's politics shift the state's politics and Georgia is now rapidly trending towards becoming a blue state. And so the sad thing as an American seeing this is that it seems like the only way that people will vote for policies that promote development and cleaning up a city is things have to go get bad enough first to demand change. And whenever things get good, they can't stay good because People will vote for policies that they think, oh, the city's doing well. It can afford to take on all these extra burdens. And they will just, in humanity, will inevitably vote to kill its golden gooses in its most prosperous cities and will only really do things by the time it's turned the corner and it's too late. This is kind of a half-baked theory, but I want to know what you guys think about the prosperity theory of democratic politics. The next one is compensation theory, which is, I did a whole video on this which I'll link to in the description, but it's the idea that real incomes since the year 2000 have been 
not catching up with the cost of living and have been structurally falling. And as a result, governments and banks have been compensating people for their lack of income and replaced their spending power from actual earnings growth and productivity growth with cheaper access to credit in the forms of cheaper mortgages pre-2008, um, more generous access to student loans, credit cards, um, or just in the post-pandemic outright stimulus checks because the consumer is not making enough money to keep up with the demand for growth of consumption that businesses need to maintain their earnings growth or for tax revenues to grow proportionally to fund the government. And yeah, if you want to know more that, watch my video on compensation theory. Um, the next one is social support systems uh, and domestic work not being quantified skews GDP to the upside. If you look at back to like say 50 or 100 years ago, you had a lot closer knit uh, extended families and local communities that would help each other out really without compensation. Like the example of this is say, if you live near your family members, um, instead of having to get an Uber to go to the airport, you could have your family member take you to the airport. And even though you're probably better off just in terms of both socially by spending more time with your family members and financially by saving the money and not buying the Uber or having your family member take you to the airport, that will actually show as a result of lower GDP because you're not spending that money. And it's not just having your family members take you to the airport. It could be like having a stay-at-home wife do childcare versus paying $2,000 a month to a daycare center to do that uh, or going out to eat versus cooking simply just because you don't have time uh, or if you live alone and it just doesn't make sense to cook. Yeah, going out to eat adds more to GDP. Sending your kids to the daycare center adds to the GDP because there's more money being spent in the economy. But has living standards really gone up? Like, no, I would argue. In fact, your life's worse because if you have to outsource all the stuff that used to be done through your family networks and your communities and have to pay outside professionals to do it, you're worse off both in terms of your weakened social ties and also financially because you have to spend a bunch of money that previous generations did not have to spend on getting the same services. The tricky thing is I don't know how much lower GDP should be to factor the fact that people now have to pay for things that they used to not have to pay for. And then that's where a source of economic growth is. But is that really economic growth or is that just people having to pay for something that they didn't previously and therefore their life is actually worse? Um, I'm surprised this really isn't talked about that much. And I think this is really the strongest economic argument for social conservatives. And even though that is the case, the fact that they fail to use it kind of baffles me. The next one is the automation ladder pull, which is the idea that automation really has a big disruption on the growth model for emerging market countries. The classical way that emerging market countries, or really any country really develops itself, it sort of starts as developing basic agriculture-based civilization. And once you do that, you move up to the next level, which is very light manufacturing. 
then you do more advanced manufacturing. And as the education of your population and the amount of foreign direct investment and capital builds in your country, then you can move up to heavy manufacturing and then to, and then eventually to a service economy and then a digital service economy. And you just keep moving up into modernity. However, with things such as AI and robotics and the geopolitical trend to onshore, the ramp that countries such as Japan and Taiwan and South Korea have been able to use in Israel to move up the ladder may not be able to happen for other countries. The thing is, I've noticed with the classic industrial model, the earlier a country pursued this, the more successful it worked for them. Um, then, and basically after a certain point, like if your country started really truly entering the industrialization process after say 1975, it's not been as work. A lot of those countries who started their industrialization within the last 50 years have gotten stuck in the middle income trap, like just Brazil and China and South Africa could fit into that cat former Soviet union could fit into that category. Um, and they get, um, they get stuck because their population ages from lowering birth rates faster than they can develop. But even on top of that, I think what's going to be an accelerant of this is that if you have automation technology and robots, which means you're going to be building your more heavier manufacturing at home and, especially because energy costs are cheaper and shipping costs are cheaper. If you keep it closer to home, whether that's in North America or Europe, then importing it from Asia or Africa or South America, those countries will not have the chance to climb up and per and the value chain by moving up the lower stages. Like it's very difficult to go from like a subsistence agriculture economy to a digital services college educated economy in one fast swoop there are some things you can advance quicker like example in africa they never really built telephone poles they went straight from having no phones to cell phone networks but that's more of a product of technological innovation and not requiring generations of education and cultural adaptation to fit into the global economy and then the, a lot of middle-income countries such again such as china and uh, Southeast Asia predominantly, who want to move out of the manufacturing into the service economy are going to have a harder time with that because a lot of the services jobs that they were counting on being available are going to be automated away by AI. And so a lot of these countries that have supposedly have a demographic boom for having a lot of young and educated people that may turn into a democratic demographic disasters. Now you have a bunch of angry, overeducated people who are underemployed, which is the roots of political instability and revolution. So yeah, how is the advancement in technology um, going to affect the classical ascent of countries into the global international order and living standard? By using is automation effectively a ladder pole that prevents poor countries from having a ladder, uh, a path to ascension. And these poor countries feel like they have no way to peacefully increase their standard of living through participating in the global economy. Will they try to resort to other means to um, try to assert themselves in the world? A lot of food for thought. The next one is longevity economics. 
longevity economics is kind of a term that I kind of just came up with, but it's just that I've been reading a lot about human life and longevity. And I really wanted to grow GDP in the fastest way possible. The key really would be to extend human life. Based on the research I've done on longevity, if you averaged the global death age life expectancy by one year older, so like everybody lived one year longer, then that would increase GDP by $16 trillion. Um, by comparison, global GDP right now is $105 trillion. So um, that would increase GDP by 15% overnight if we increased the average life expectancy on the round the, for the whole world by just one year. Right now, the global life expectancy in the world as of 2023 is 73.16 years. Um, if you go back to 2000, it was 66 years. I think that just seven years in gains has probably been a big driver for GDP growth for multiple reasons. One, people live longer, they're going to be consuming longer. If people live longer, those who have enough savings to invest are going to have more compounded returns because over the li their lifetime before they have to pass it down to the next generation and pay estate tax because simply they're alive longer. And there's a lot of other beneficial consequences to this. So if you really are somebody who's goal as an economist is to, or a policymaker is to maximize living standards and grow the economy as fast as possible, then really we should have more investment in longevity science and helping people live longer because living longer is again, the fastest way to grow GDP. It actually increases the productivity of the society by a much longer time frame.